You have your Bibles. Let's go to John chapter 18 where we were in our scripture reading and we're just going to read one of those verses again. Then we'll have a word of prayer and then we'll look at today's message. Thank you ladies for that special music. It fits very well really with the story that is at hand and that we read. Talks about Gethsemane there if you didn't pick up on that. Let's notice verse 11. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall, not, shall I not drink it? So I want to focus your attention once again on the very last part of that, which is a question. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? And now let's look to the Lord and ask his blessing as we look into God's word today. Father, thank you for each person who's come. Thank you for this special day you've given us. Thank you for putting the desire in our hearts to be out at church and to seek out a place where we can honor you and acknowledge you and recognize that uh, you have given the commandment for the Lord's Day to set it apart and to uh, regard it as special for you. We pray that you will fulfill all your purpose in our life through this day, that it may be a time of rest, it may be a time of worship, and it may be a time of testimony as those around us see that uh, we... Uh, find it important to be in the house of the Lord and perhaps wonder in their hearts why that might be. Lord, we just continue to face such a, an increasing secularization here in America. We realize that only a minority really attend church anymore, and of that, just a small few really acknowledge the truth of your word. But, uh, Father, we're grateful that you always remind us you have 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And, Help us, Father, just today to rejoice in your grace, as we heard talked about in the early, uh, in the Sunday school hour, to know, Father, that it's nothing you found in us. It's only your grace that brings us here today. And, Lord, we just pray for each listener, each person who worships today. Father, you know our hearts. You know what our needs are. I pray that you will guide and direct in the message so that what comes out and what is given will be suitable to, and helpful to bring God's people close to you. And, Lord, if we have anybody here this morning that just doesn't know Jesus as personal Savior, uh, Lord, maybe they haven't meant to be in that condition, but they just are. They've just never really put faith and trust in Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Then, Lord, I pray that we will realize that it's still the cross, it's still the blood. The saving power is still there. That's still our message. Help us to make that clear today and pray that you'll draw men and women and boys and girls to yourself. For we pray these things in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, this is another of those penetrating questions of Jesus. The several times I've had to be with you now, I've talked to you a little bit about this. This series is composed of 25 or so of the most pointed questions that Jesus asked in the course of his ministry. And what we've come to see and what you do if you do this study is you certainly find that Jesus, as a master teacher, used questions very artfully. People still do. It's just a, a point, really, of speech to know how to use a question in such a way as to drive home a certain point. Instead of saying it declaratively, you ask it in a question, and sometimes it has a particular power to make the point that you're driving at. We certainly see that here this morning. This question comes from perhaps one of the most familiar scenes in the life of Christ. It comes from the ending part of the Garden of Gethsemane that I think we're pretty familiar with. It's addressed to Peter. And if you think about this, this really comes to Peter in what we might say is a mild rebuke. And uh, Peter is, in a sense, questioning that the Lord is going to carry through. He says to Peter, the cup which my father hath given me to drink, shall I not drink it? Think about that for just a few moments. And Jesus was really saying to him, really? 
I've been ministering to you this entire time, all these years. I've told you about God's will. I've told you especially to prepare you that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, rise again the third day. Peter was the one who had trouble with that, if you remember. That story is given to us in Matthew 16. And Jesus kept reaffirming to them and reaffirming to them and preparing them for the fact that that's what was going to happen because the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And he kept telling them that and telling them that. And now Peter is going to obstruct that and Jesus tells us, put the sore away. We don't need that now. Don't you think I'm going to drink the cup? Don't you think I'm going to carry forth the purpose? Don't you think I'm going to do the will of God that I came here and was sanctified and set apart by God to come into the world to do? And so really the topic of this question and what we're going to talk about in the message today has to do with our commitment to God and to God's will. How about that in your life today? You think about that as God's child? You've been bought with a price, the Bible says, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We have an obligation to acknowledge God's ownership of our life, not only in the sense of creation, but also in the sense of redemption. I think some allusion was that made to that in the opening of Sunday school this morning, if we belong to him. But sometimes we don't always live that way. Sometimes we don't always walk that way. Sometimes we're glad enough for Jesus to be our Savior, not so glad for him to be our Lord. But it's a package deal, folks. You don't divorce the one from the other. He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. And if we have not acknowledged his lordship or we are not living that way, he's going to keep on working in our life until we get to the place that we truly surrender to him. So that's what this is really about today. I think really the best way for me to set the stage uh, for this particular topic and trying to get this message in the context brought forward as clearly as I possibly can is to spend my time in the first part of the message talking to you about the struggle that went on here in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't know what you think about that, but just, but, but just because, and I hope you'll understand how I'm saying this, just because Jesus is the Son of God doesn't mean that there was not a struggle in that garden, for there most certainly was. And Jesus is telling Peter, don't you think I'm going to do God's will? But it's important for us to recognize because it's part of his identity with us as the perfect Savior. It's part of our ability to understand and to appreciate the fact that each of us seems to struggle with this. And yet the Lord himself in the garden had to come to grips with this final and utter act of commitment to the will of God, being willing to drink the cup that the Father had given him to drink. It's no fiction that's going on here because he was the son of God. In fact, what I would say to you is it's all the more real. The struggle is all the more real because he is the son of God. And so when we think about what the other gospel writers, we often refer to Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the synoptic gospels. And as you know, they present the stories much of the same, but often from a different perspective than John does. It just has to do with the fact that there were different purposes in the writings of the book. But when John tells us the story, he doesn't give us some of the details or all of the details that the others do. But think about this for a minute. I think you're very familiar with this. I don't think no, there's any need to turn to these verses. But Matthew 26 and verse 31, as Matthew is talking about what goes on in the garden, he says that Jesus said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful. 
Think about that for a moment. If you think about the, in terms of the fact that the struggle was very real. Jesus said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful. Mark 14, 34. Mark says he said the same thing, but includes two more words that Matthew didn't. That Jesus said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. This is getting pretty serious, wouldn't you say? This is getting pretty intense. Mark or Luke uses the word agony. It says, and being in an agony, he sweat, as it were, great drops of what? Of blood. So when you take the three phrases that are captured from some of the praying that the Lord did and what he tried to tell the disciples he was up against in that place, it gets pretty descriptive. It gets pretty graphic. Now, in the human sense, to me, that is identifying with our Lord's human nature, I think that this struggle can only be heightened. In other words, our appreciation for how intense this really was, looking at it from a human perspective, can only be heightened when we stop to think for a few moments. This is where we'll talk a little bit about the story, the context of these verses, but can only be heightened really by thinking about the resources that are at hand for Jesus to have avoided this drinking of this cup. You think about this for just a few moments. I want to think about the human resources first because you have to give it to Peter. I think maybe I've made comment on this to you before. I don't know. I, I, I say it often in, in my preaching just because it's something that really sticks with me, but I'm not one of these preachers that makes jokes at Peter or makes jokes at Peter's expense. I know a lot of people that do that. People talk about the fact that, you know, Peter opened his mouth only to exchange feet and that Peter seemed to always be blundering into something and saying something stupid. And I just don't like that because I think it assumes a certain arrogance on our part because I think anytime you point a finger at someone else, usually you've got three coming back in your own direction. And I think that this is really true in the case of Peter. And I also find that a whole lot of what is said about Peter misses the mark. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, we talk about Peter and we, we, we preach and we should, but I think we should do so with a little hum more humility when we talk about the fact that Peter, he sunk when he got out of the boat to walk on the water because he took his eyes off of Jesus and we pound, pound on Peter and pound on Peter for that. And my question is, how many of you have gotten out of the boat? Well, I certainly haven't, so I'm not going to say anything about Peter. I wouldn't even have enough faith to to do what he did in that particular instance. Well, in this case, if you wonder where I'm headed with this, the joke has to do with Peter's swordsmanship. And Peter say, well, you know, when you read the story here, it's obvious that Peter was a fisherman. Look at his aim, was pretty poor. He, he, he couldn't even do the guy in, he got his ear. And, and I tell you folks, I really think the opposite is true. I think he was pretty good with the sword. Now think about it for a moment. What was Peter's intent in this? That's kind of really where this is headed. Think about it for a moment. If, if, if you hunt deer or you know someone who does, you can pretty well get this one. How many times at 150 or 200 yards would you choose to try to shoot a deer in the head versus a heart-lung shot? Think about that for a moment. You have a whole lot more to work with when you're, you're looking for that heart-lung shot than you do with a headshot. Every once in a while, I'll hear a hunter describe that. I know some people who are capable of that. I am not. I might be, but I'm not going to take the chance. I'm going to give myself maximum insurance. Well, think about a man with a sword. I mean, look at this. You've got this much. You know, you're, you're aiming for, for center body mass with a sword. I don't really think it's like that. I don't think Peter could 
could very easily miss that. I think that Peter is trying to fire what we might ca call a shot across the bow. He steps forward. He pulls this sword out. He's intent on warning these people, hey, back off. After all, if you would go back to John chapter 13 and verse 37, you would find out, and John 13, 37 is important. The chapter and the reference are important because you're right on the eve, really, of this upper room discourse. It's all a part of what happened right at the very end there. So it's very close uh, in proximity to where we are, even though there are a number of chapters between it. Do, do you follow what I'm saying? And Peter said to the Lord, I will lay down my life for thy sake. So to me, I, I give it to him for bravery. I don't see anybody else doing that in this group, really. And you can tell me all you want about afterwards they all forsook him and fled, but I still see what Peter did here. And I, I think that he was stepping forward, and uh, he could have been a leader. He was their leader, you know. You'll check the apostolic lists everywhere you find them in, in the Gospels and in Acts. You'll always find Peter's name mentioned first. He was first among equals. He wasn't the Pope, but he definitely was their leader. And he was taking the lead in this particular case, and he was showing loyalty to Jesus. He was showing courage. So you have the Lord thinking to himself, well, he did have 12 men who... Well, 11, because one was on the other side at this point. But he had these men there. They were certainly human resources. But lest we spend too much time talking about that, let's talk about the divine resources that are at hand. Now, here's something interesting. If you have some fingers, which I know you do, it's starting to say a bulletin, but I don't think you use a bulletin. So just uh, keep a mark of some kind here if you would like to go back to this and turn to Matthew chapter 26, verse 53. Because you find out that this gentle rebuke that he gives to Peter actually involves another of these penetrating questions. He asks him at least two. And in the earlier part of this series, Penetrating Questions of Jesus, I actually have another message on this exact question. This is kind of a famous question, really, that Jesus asked. And he says this to him. This is, this is right out of the very same thing. It's just a detail that Matthew gives us that John doesn't, and John is the only one who gives us the question that we're looking at this morning. But here we have this in Matthew. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father? This is, he's saying this to Peter. It's another question. Thinkest thou not that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? Do you see that? And we have a sort of a well-known gospel song that has come out of that verse. What, he could have called 10 thousand angels. Well, you have to give the songwriter a little bit of poetic license is kind of what I think you have to call it because he's a little off on the count. In Matthew, Jesus said, don't you think that I can pray to God? Don't you think that I can pray to my Father and he will now presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? How many angels do you think there are? I don't have a clue. Do you? I don't have a clue, but this is pretty impressive what he says here because a Roman legion, whether you take the six, figure 6,000 or 5,000, is a pretty impressive number. You multiply that by 12 and then put with it that Jesus said more than, so you have a number ranging somewhere between 60,000 and 72,000 and put a plus at the end of it because he says more. That ought to got the job done, don't you think? He has these divine resources. He has these human resources. They're already at hand. But then now, well, the word sort of baited me a little bit there during the Sunday school. He had his, another resource 
And that is his own deity or his own divinity because uh, there is, I think, a pretty clear inference to that in this passage when Jesus steps forward himself and he asks a question. He says, whom seek ye? And their first response was Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. Well, he does this twice, but in the first instance, John records the first time what their reaction was to it. This is really sort of the tip-off. Because when you have um, these words, in the original language, it would simply be ego eimi. It's the same thing as in English, and he's right. The, the he is put there, sort of, the translators put, their, put that there for us so that it's, it's smoother English, not awkward English. I am he. But he just uses the words that mean I am, just like you would have in English. But we don't talk that way. Someone says, whom seek ye? Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. You would say, well, that's me. Or that's really bad grammar. You would say, that's I, or I am he. Right? That's what we would say. So the, the he is supplied there so that it's smooth English. Now, what does it mean? Well, it means two things. In the first place, it is an acknowledgment. There's no question about that, that it is an acknowledgment. That was the direct question that they asked. Whom seek ye? They, Jesus asks of them. They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, it's I. You're, you found the person you're looking for. I am he. It means that. Does it mean more? Has to mean more, because otherwise there's no purpose for John to tell us in verse number 6. As soon then as he had said this unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell on the ground. Well, you wouldn't do that, not in a case like this, not all this crowd that's there, not if all Jesus is doing is say, well, yes, I'm your man. No, he's saying something more. And we know that Jesus did this through the course of his ministry. Turn back to chapter 8 for a moment. And again, we won't take a lot of time, but I think sometimes it's helpful to look down at the verses and see, particularly in the in the context of John's gospel. Now, he's got another extended discourse going on here in John chapter 8 with these Pharisees, and he's having sort of a, a go with them, if you will. Uh, they're arguing back and forth with Jesus about who he is and statements that he makes, and you're familiar with this kind of thing. But look at verse 24. Jesus says this to them, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Well, that doesn't so much mean unless you believe that I'm Jesus of Nazareth, right? It means more than that. But it goes on, and then we find it again in verse number 28. By the way, Jesus has said some things in this chapter earlier. When he talked about the fact that I am he, he already made a claim. Verse 12, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall walk, not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He makes claim to a special relationship. Verse 36, if the Son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. This unique relationship that he had with the Father. When you get down to verse 28, he does it again. Then said Jesus unto them, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then ye shall know that I am he. Not that I am Jesus of Nazareth. It has more meaning than just that. That I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I, uh, I speak these things. Now, if you want the clincher, just go to the very end of the chapter, because... This um, thing keeps ramping up, this back and forth that they have here, this, these people that are giving Jesus a hard time. And Jesus makes the statement. He says, your father Abraham, verse 56, says this is kind of all playing out to a conclusion. I mean, it just keeps ramping up. It keeps ramping up. 
And he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. What would you think if somebody who was living 2,000 years after Abraham said that to you? And so their reaction was kind of normal. Verse 57, then said the Jews unto him, thou art not yet 50 years old. They pick a number. And hast thou seen Abraham? So they thought, that, they thought that what he was saying was ludicrous. He wasn't even 50, and it was more than 2,000 years before that Abraham lived. Jesus said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, what do you have there? I am. And there's no I am he there, it's just I am, because it's pretty obvious in the context. Now, folks, let me pause here long enough to say this. You know, there's some people come along and try to tell you tell you that the Jesus never claims to be God. That's that's preposterous. Absolutely preposterous. When you look at this this context, it's clear that the Jews understood it that way. Verse 59, then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, giving, uh, going through the midst of them and so passed by. They clearly understood him as referring to that name of God, God's personal name, God's covenant name that he reveals in Exodus 3.14 in the Old Testament, I am that I am. Then you have one more little detail. It's something I'd like to point out because I think maybe this is sometimes missed in the telling of this story when you're, you're, you're looking at what, what's really going on. What, what, what's really, how do I get the greatest feel for what's going on here? Well, you'll notice something in John chapter uh, 18. Let's go back to our, our text chapter. Verse number 3 says this, Jesus, or Judas then, having received, what's the next word? A band. Now, what do you think that means? Well, he wasn't going out there with a bunch of musical instruments, right? So it obviously means something else. And in this particular case, you've got two different words going on here that kind of give us insight into this motley crew that shows up in order to arrest Jesus. The band is, is a term that refers, refers to Roman soldiers. It's, it's spera in Greek. It has to do with a detachment. Now, once again, if you played the literal numbers, it would be the word they would use for a cohort, and a fully equipped cohort was 600 men. I don't think they had 600 men here. You can find references in the earlier literature from uh, the 3rd and 4th century B.C. where uh, the term sparrow was also used for a, a detachment, a smaller group of men, somewhere between 60 and 120. I don't know if you had that many. All I know is the word is used for a detachment of Roman soldiers, and there was a contingent of Roman soldiers there in Jerusalem, right there at the, in the temple fortress, the fortress of Antonia, which was where they were stationed. What this means is that the Jews weren't taking any chances. The chief priests and the scribes, they didn't leave anything to chance. They wanted to be sure this time they got the job done. So in addition to the officers, now notice what it says next. Judas, therefore, having received the band of men, here's your second word, and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. See, they weren't leaving it to chance this time that the officers would get it done. Who were the officers? Well, it'd be a little bit like what you had in Pittsburgh yesterday. I mean, you know, the first responders are going to come, but the people who have immediate jurisdiction are who? Well, it'd be the Pittsburgh police, right? They have immediate jurisdiction. The minute someone says it's a hate crime, the feds are coming, right? And so what's going on here is these are what we would call temple police, these officers. There's a different word in Greek, huperetes, is a word for servants. They are people who are dispatched. They're the, 
kind of the personal police force of the Jews there in the temple. But see, you have a reference earlier, one time before in John chapter 7, that the officers were dispatched, these very same type of people were dispatched to go take Jesus and bring him. They came back and they didn't have him, and what was their response? They said, well, never a man spake like this man. You remember that verse? It was the same outfit. It was the same temple police, and they, they had been uh, awed once before. So you have quite a group here, and then it says in the end of verse 3 that they have lanterns and torches and weapons. Well, the other writers, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, tell us what these weapons were swords and staves. So you've got quite a contingent here who are coming against the Lord, which to me, again, makes all the more impressive Peter's courage, makes all the more impressive our Lord stepping forth in order to protect his disciples and fulfillment of that scripture, of all whom thou gavest me have I lost none. They ask, who are you looking for? He's, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I'm your man, I am he. And all of this in the face of all of this group, can you imagine what this was like? This, this serene garden, this quiet place, this place of tranquility, now interrupted by this detachment of soldiers, by this motley crew from the temple, by Judas out in front. They've got lanterns and torches and clubs. Some of them have clubs and some of them have staves. And all of this, I think just amplifies the fact that for the Lord, I mean, there's lots of resources to deal with this. But he says, still says to Peter, the cup that the Father has given me to drink, shall I not drink it? See, if Jesus were powerless to resist them, you wouldn't have had that much of a struggle. I mean, you might have had the internal struggle with what the cup represented, which I'll comment on in just a moment. But when you don't have the resources to do anything about it, sometimes you just sort of do what? Give up. Don't we get that way sometimes? We just kind of get beat down to the point where we just sort of give up. It's, this is not that way, folks. Jesus has resources here. Yet, you know, in many senses, um, we don't expect any less of Jesus because this is all part of something the author to the Hebrew tells us. I want to look at a couple of verses. If you don't mind just going to Hebrews chapter 5, first of all, for a moment. If we have any doubt in what I've said so far about how real this struggle really was for Jesus, then all we have to do is come to another divine commentary that's given to us, apart from the story itself, by another writer in the Bible in referring back to this very scene. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse number 6, it says, as he, and as he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then it says this, who in the days of his flesh, now it's not talking about Melchizedek there, it's talking about verse 6, who is the one who's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? Who is that? That's Jesus. So that's who's being described here, not Melchizedek. It says, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication, with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Though he was a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Do, do, do you see what this is saying? This is saying that this struggle, this agony, 
uh, he, it caused him to pray to God with such intensity that it, it's represented and described as strong crying and tears and knowing that God was able to save him. And when we think about all of these things, you can't help but think to yourself how awful must have been that cup. How bitter must have been those dregs. How awful must it have been to consider separation from his father? It's another one of those penetrating questions. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? How awful it must have been to have been identified with us in the bearing of our sins in what the, uh, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And beloved, another comment by the author to the Hebrews is apropos at this point because he describes him as being holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. And I don't think we've really stopped very long to think about how awful, how bitter the dregs of that cup, how awful it was the spotless Lamb of God, to be identified with human sin and to bear our sins, to become our sin bearer, to be like that scapegoat that was sent forth from the camp, bearing our reproach and our sin. It must have been awful. Hence the struggle. And yet, it's a part really on the human side of his becoming. It's really, I really maybe would describe it this way. It's, it's the crowning jewel, really. What happens here is the, the crowning jewel in his perfection as our Savior. Not that the Son of God isn't perfect, but what the author to the Hebrews is sharing us a point on the human side and saying he understands our struggles. To me, all of this is important because it makes this so eminently practical in the preaching of it. Because, beloved, you and I are struggling with this all the time, are we not? I mean, when God asks us something that seems to come routinely or easily to us where we are in our, in our comfort zone, we don't struggle so much with that. But boy, you just let God ask something that's a little bit outside of our comfort zone, and the first thing you know, we've got a struggle on our hands too, don't we? All of this, that Jesus might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, that we can call upon him knowing that he can identify and that we can identify with him, he understands because he went through these struggles himself on the human side. I like to think of it this way. Um, most people are at the place where they have to deal with finances. Some of the young people maybe not so much so, but... Uh, most of this audience, you've had to deal with finances, so most people understand a checkbook. It really helps if you balance it periodically. <laughs> but most of us understand the concept of a checkbook, so I want you to think in those terms for a moment. Think of your checkbook. And uh, it's almost like this. So let's say you get the checkbook out and you discover that you, you've used the last check and you didn't put a new um, packet of checks in the little binder thingy that you have there. So you get out a new packet from the box of checks and you put it in there. And now what you're going to do is this. You're going to go through and fill in, pay to the order of God. And let's just say you have 31 checks in that particular packet. And you're going to put, let's just say we're dealing with October. So you're going to date the first one October 1, the next one October 2, and so forth and so on. So that you've got a check written for every day of the month. 
You're going to put pay to the order of God, but you're not going to fill the amount in, but you are going to sign every last one of them. And every day when you get up, you've got the check that's marked for that particular day, and you're going to give it to God like you'd pay a bill, not knowing what amount he's going to fill in. So today, if he asks you for $25, most of us say, well, you know, I can handle that. But maybe tomorrow he asks for 50 or maybe the next day he asks for 5000 Who knows? None of us knows what's tomorrow. None of us knows what God is going to bring next into our Christian experience in order to make us draw closer to him, in order to make us more like him. It can be a real struggle. Would that be tough for you to do? Would it be tough for you to trust God that he wouldn't fill in an amount that you couldn't handle? He might fill in what seems to you to be a lot, but he won't overdraw your account because in our meager resources, he just keeps adding and adding from his great stores. Always there's the grace that's there, but it's still a struggle for us, isn't it? But you know, as much as we talk about this struggle where this message needs to end is us talking about the decision that, that comes out of it. And that's, of course, surrender. Our Lord completely surrendered to the will of God. And that's indisputably the issue. If, if I haven't made that clear to this point, then let me make it abundantly clear now. Indisputably, the issue here is the will of God. That's what we're talking about this morning, our commitment to the will of God for our lives. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 26 for a moment because even though all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this, I'd like for you to see Matthew because Matthew reproduces these three prayers and uh, I think you'll see what I'm headed for by showing you these verses if you go to Matthew chapter 26 for just a moment. So here are the three prayers and you, you ask yourself what you see in the verse is what he's praying about. What's the issue here? Matthew 26 and verse 39. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. So what's the issue? Not what I will, but what you will, your will. And we look then at verse 42, the second prayer. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O oh my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy what? Will be done. And then verse 44, is it? Verse 44 he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Three times. So it shouldn't be, there shouldn't be any question in our mind what this contest, what this struggle, what the issue is really here that we're talking about this morning. But I will say to you this, you know, what was settled in eternity has now been tested in time. And in the garden is memorialized as an example, not just to Peter. He's talking to Peter. But not just to Peter, but for all of us who down through successive generations read this story and find this example in our Lord. What do I mean that which was settled in eternity? Because it was. I mean, if you read the author to the Hebrews again, I'll, I won't ask you to turn back to that, but if we go to chapter 10, he's quoting from Psalm 40. And he says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, so this is Jesus, 
He saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O my God. This, this, this really is an issue that was settled in eternity. But now it's tested in time as the Lord actually comes into this world and its outcome is that it's memorialized forever in an example to Peter and thus from Peter to you and to me, how our Lord responded to this crisis in his life. And I will say something else, beloved. I think that this, the recognition of what I'm talking about now was so precious to and made such an impact on the Apostle Paul that he actually follows the same example with a huge time when he came to a struggle in his own life. I will ask you to turn to this one, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're almost done with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it may help you to see this, just looking down at the actual references where you can actually see what I'm talking about. The struggle that Paul had. And he says in verse number 7 of chapter 12, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given unto me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. I don't think Paul tells us what the thorn in the flesh was for a reason. And some people think they know, and that's fine. I, you know, I, I won't quibble. Some think people think it was eye trouble. I don't know what it was. There's eye trouble, E-Y-E, and there's eye trouble, I. So Paul may have had trouble with both. I don't know. He says, lest I should be exalted, that's the eye trouble, I. Whether the other was a problem to him or not, I don't know. It says the messenger of Satan to buffet me. Whatever this is, I think it's, it's left undefined so that you and I can't just beg off and say, well, he doesn't have what I have. But the answer to it is, for this thing, he says, is this thing so exercised him? This so bothered him? This was such an intense struggle in his life, whatever this was, that he says, for this thing I besought the Lord thrice, just like Jesus did in the garden, three times. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. What did God say? My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So when we reach the end of our meager resources, he giveth and giveth and giveth again, and God's grace is sufficient. But Paul was to follow this very example, a struggle that unfolded in three prayers and was also climaxed by surrender. So where does all of this leave us and find us in the message today? Well, some of us have settled this in our lives, and we don't know what will unfold tomorrow, but we'll face that when it comes, right? And we'll trust God for his grace, just like the Apostle Paul did. doesn't mean that though you've settled this in your life, the fact that I belong to him, the fact that I'm committed to him, the fact that I'm surrendered to his will, I'm committed to that, I've, I've told him so, I've made that commitment in my life, doesn't mean there won't be some additional challenges, don't mean, doesn't mean there won't be some struggles, there very likely will be. Because there's no other way for us to really become more like Jesus and for us to really experience God's grace. It, I wish it could come easy, folks. Um, 
unfortunately, I just don't have the health and wealth gospel to preach to you. It just, it just doesn't come easily, I can tell you that. So some of us have made that decision, and I mean, we can say amen, praise the Lord, and we know there may be a test tomorrow, but others of us maybe we just never have quite settled that. We say we know Christ is Savior, but there never really has been a time when we've settled the fact that we belong to him. He's the Lord of our lives. We're committed to him. And others have made that decision and acknowledged that truth, but we've given up some ground. We just sort of maybe not walking in the light of it exactly as we ought to be walking in the light of it. There's an interesting story that comes from the Queen of England, Queen Mary to be exact, about a time when she was visiting Scotland because we're told that she enjoyed doing that. She really loved the people there and she would try to, to visit Scotland at least once a year and so she would mingle with them and many times she was so comfortable with these Scottish people that she didn't exactly just keep, well, you know, today it would be a secret service. She didn't just keep those guards just at clo real close at hand. And so on the particular occasion of this incident, she had gotten a little further out walking with some children than she intended to walk, and it looked like a storm was going to come up. And so she said, oh, no, I'm going to be caught out here in the rain. And so she thought, well, maybe I can borrow an umbrella. And she went to a woman's a door, and a woman came to the door, and she asked if she could borrow an umbrella. The woman didn't recognize her, and so the woman thought to herself, do I want to give a stranger my best umbrella? So she reached in and she found a cast-off. I don't know if you have them, but they don't make them very well, so I always have one in reserve that's, you know, the one that's got a broken wing. Or <laughs> She reached in and she got kind of a cast-off. Well, it had a couple of the supports broken, and it also had some of the fabric in it was a bit tattered, and she said, here, take this. And the queen thanked her and left, and the next day, there came a knock at her door again, and this time there was a royal guard standing there, and the man who was in the forefront it said, the queen sent me, said she asked me to thank you for loaning her this and return the umbrella. And the woman just looked at him, and she just burst into tears. And she said, oh, what an opportunity I have missed. I didn't give the queen my very best. Beloved, I preach this sermon to you this morning because you know what? You don't want that day to come. I don't either. When we stand in the Lord's presence or when we realize an opportunity he's given us has come and gone, we don't want to look back at a life that has a lot of wasted years in it because we just kind of kept holding out and holding out and holding out. Jesus was gentle. That's what is so wonderful about Jesus. I say it was a mild rebuke. I mean, there were there was the one time that he really rebuked Peter, the time in Matthew 16, but for the most part, he was so gentle. And he basically said to him here, Peter, the cup, the cup that my father gave me, shall I not drink it? Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you today for your great love. And we ask you, Father, to challenge us by this very example that you set for us that we've been able to talk about a little bit more here this morning in another one of these questions.